You're listening to Women's Cricket Chat with Hannah and Alex. This episode is brought to you by Black Rat Cricket. Remember, if you quote Women's Cricket Chat, you can get 15% off your team wear. Coming up on our fourth podcast for International Women's Week, we've got Jane Powell. Now, Jane played six test matches and 24 ODIs for England between 1979 and 1991. You may also recognise Jane's achievements as she captained England in the 1988 World Cup. And Jane didn't just stop there. She didn't just play cricket, she also played hockey and badminton for England. In this episode, Jane talks about her career and what cricket was like back when she was playing and how the game has moved forward and her new sporting ventures. How's life been since, obviously, chatting to you back before Christmas now? Because I saw you got... Probably been very sort of Groundhog Day all the way through, really. You know, it's just like, oh, what's today? Oh, more video calls. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's just like, it's what we're all doing, isn't it? But, you know, hopefully we'll be seeing the end of it, you know. Um, You spoke to Enid last week, didn't you, or the week before? She's a... Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was... It was interesting, for sure. It was brilliant. Um, But it took a turn which we didn't expect as well. Her humour is very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not too um, PG. (laughs) I was going to say, sometimes she she lacks that um, PG, you know, sort of that uh, filter. Yeah. Yeah. Always there these days, but uh, brilliant player. Absolutely first class. You know. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, uh, we've been <coughs> looking through and like looking at photos and trying to get some like good audio from it and stuff too. And it just makes me kind of like well up a bit because it's, it's so, honestly, I find it so magical speaking to like former players like yourself. It's all of those kind of experiences that you had, but just so different to today's game. And yeah, no, very different. Yeah. It encouraged today's game too, didn't it? So without you guys, we wouldn't be where we are now. And I just, I love hearing it all and stuff. Yeah, I so. think little steps along the way have to be taken. So so that we are where we are today you know that's just yeah. the course of history isn't it because I don't know where I picked this up from whether it was at a conference or something but somebody was talking about turning points of like the women's game or whatever and they're like it's not turning points it's I've written it down somewhere and I've completely forgotten it was a different word that recognizes that the history before so these turning points don't just magically happen no I think there are milestones along the way aren't they yeah that's a better word for it Mark. I, can't remember, yeah, I can't remember what word I used but definitely like you say like milestones or something think is much better yeah because you know even you know having the first world cup in 73 was just like wow you know that was a big step forward you know and if we'd not done that then would we have had the you know the the right to sort of have what we've had in the last few years because it takes a while to build up really it really does and it's honestly this is why i'm so buzzing to be able to speak should we get this interview uh rolling alec go for it perfect so i guess the first question is simply just introduce yourself jane so how would you talk about yourself to our listeners it's interesting when people ask you to introduce yourself because I often say, uh, apart from my name is Jane Powell, that I'm just a girl from Sheffield. That's who I am. However, you know, I've been I've been lucky, blessed, whatever you want to call it, along the way to uh, play cricket for England and to captain England and to also coach England, which uh, I think still to this day I'm the only person who's ever captained and coached England, male or female. So. Um, that would be the main part that the cricket people would be interested in. I've also played hockey for England and I played junior badminton for England as well. So, and I, I was head of coaching for England hockey, GB hockey for two Olympics and now work for England lacrosse. 
I was going to say an absolutely accomplished leader and thinking about International Women's Day. So what does leadership look like to you and what makes you such a good leader within your field? Yeah, leadership's a really interesting one because there are many different styles of leadership. Um, For me, I would say that my style of leadership is from behind and encouraging others to step forward because I think, uh, but not leaving them um, by themselves. So, you know, saying, right, you can do this. You know, I've got a colleague at work and I've asked her to do something. Um, And I've said, and I'm, I'm here if you have any questions just give me a call and she's really risen to that challenge um or you know there's the form of leadership that says follow me so I like to think that I have role modeled what I've expected whether that was as captain or whether that was as coach you know I'd always be one of the last ones at practice I'd always be one of the first ones there I'd always make sure that I was doing all the hard yards to um to expect if I expect anything of others then I would expect it of myself and and twice as much I think as a female you learn that in leadership because you have to keep proving yourself again and again you know as a male you can be a leader and that's it you're a leader whereas as a female particularly in sport then you have to keep proving to people that you are capable of doing this role and capable of of leading in this way um but you know I I love Jacinda Ardern because you know I love the fact that you don't have to lead like the men lead you don't have to lead like anybody else leads you you just lead in the way that you feel best suits you and best is um, a reflection of who you are so that's basically how I've led and fortunately a number of people have, have been inspired and come along the journey with me. So for you in terms of cricket what does leadership look like to you? In terms of cricket then I think it there's a few things that leadership means there. And uh, some of them, you know, way back when I played was about keeping playing despite the lack of support or the lack of people noticing that you were playing, you know. So I just wanted to lead the way for other girls who wanted to play cricket to be able to play cricket, you know. And I mean, I played cricket because I loved it. That was fundamentally why I played. But then, you know, together with my twin sister, Jill, you know, we found that we were quite good at it. So therefore, you know, we necessarily then went into more and more. We were competitive with each other. But I think leadership for us back then was showing that women could play cricket you know you used to get the doubters come along and then they go away going oh you know you saw the late cut in those days you know which men didn't play because it got very much fast bowling bouncers etc whereas the the deafness the skillfulness of playing a late cut suddenly wasn't involved in the game but you saw that when you came to the women's games and I think you know yes it was important about saying look we can play the game but it was about playing it well and playing it to a good standard but also playing it with good sportsmanship all those things that you know we we now look on and think oh that's great when we see elements of that but that was the nature of how we played the game you know we clapped the opposition off the field we clap people onto the field you know all the things that probably have, have been lost a lot in the games these days but that was leadership then was about playing the game well and being custodians of the sport for the time that we played it you know the game's going to go on a long time after I've left this earth and possibly after you guys have left this earth but you know we must hand the the game on in a better position than when we joined it and that's what I'd like to think is that we handed the game on at a better position than when I I had the luxury the pleasure the privilege of playing and coaching England. And then just taking you back now to when you first made your debut as well so tell us how old you are and what was the kind of the context of that time? 
Yeah, that's an interesting one because um, um, we, as a Young England team, we went to India in 1981. And interestingly, uh, you won't find it in any of the record books because although we played against India, um, it, it was deemed later on that they were unofficial tests. So I, I actually went on a seven-week tour of India in '81, and it was just—it was just the most um, amazing tour I'd ever been. You know, I'd never—I'd hardly ever been out of the country. So to suddenly go to India for seven weeks, you know, and, and we're talking about going to India when to phone back home, you'd have to go to an, a telephone exchange and and ask them to phone London, and London would then put them through to wherever you were to, to our parents, say in Sheffield, and they go, you know, London, London, this is Delhi, this is Delhi. You know, and it was really exciting that you were actually phoning England. So, you know, we're talking about a very, very different lifestyle then. I've just realised it's 40 years ago. So, yes, you know, uh, a long time ago. But that was the first time. And I can remember getting my first England blazer and having to pay to, to get the blazer, you know. And you just think it was just a completely different life then. Um, so, yeah, very, very proud you know I'd always wanted to play for England at cricket I had dreams of playing cricket and um, to be able to do that was phenomenal I made my full debut whilst I was I, I was quite a good fielder so I 12th manned quite a lot about 20 times I think 21 times uh, but I actually played I think my debut was 83 or something against the New Zealanders 84 um and it was just, yeah, it was just the best moment of your life, you know, to be able to put on that blazer and represent your country at a sport that you just absolutely loved, you know. So, you know, way back in 73, we played in the first World Cup against Jamaica as a junior England team, you know. So we'd been in and around the area quite a lot before that. And then suddenly, you know, I had the privilege of being able to be selected so that was great and and then my de test debut was basically um uh, JB Jeanette Britton broke a thumb so I came into the second test against India in 86 at Blackpool Stanley Park and uh, I thought right this is my chance you know and uh, well fortunately sometimes when you get an opportunity and you take it it just pays dividends I got 115 not out and I think then it was like well I've proved myself now. So that was another big moment as well. There were lots of moments along the way that just culminate in the in the career as such. So, uh, but lots of lovely, happy memories along the way. And when you played in India, how did you deal with the crowds? Because obviously India is a very cricket-loving nation and they tend to get a lot of fans, whereas in England at the time, it was a lot different. So how did you cope playing in front of all those people you're absolutely right you know I used to say that you know we've gone from three men and a dog uh watching to suddenly we had 20,000 people you know the first one day tonight one of the first internationals we played at Agra uh one of the stands collapsed because there were so many people on it you know they were those temporary sort of stands but one of them collapsed because there's so many people on it and it was just I loved it I, I guess I, li I like the entertainment side of the sport as well so I was shaking my head you know to the crowd and putting my hand up in the sort of namaste pose and saying hello to them and I just love that interaction I think because you know you feel like you're an entertainer but even more so when there's a crowd and you know, I've been thinking about, wow, you know, how are the players coping with COVID times and no crowds at the moment? And I guess it was a bit like playing cricket for us in England and then playing in uh, in India. But no, I love the crowds, you know, that 
when you play at Eden Gardens, they warn you about oranges coming on the pitch and, you know, you used to get them and toss them back or there was a couple of kites in Amnabad and, you know, there's all sorts of little things where you interacted with the crowd. Um, but I just loved it, you know, and probably loved it even more so at Amnabad where I batted for 73 minutes for seven not out to save the game, you know, and uh, the crowd were great. You know, they were very honest crowds, you know, they obviously wanted India to win, but they were very appreciative when you when you batted well and you you didn't let them win the game, you know. So yeah, very, very friendly, very they're very intelligent when it comes to cricket. They understand what cricket is. They understand the tactics. They understand how uh, difficult it can be and uh, how they appreciate your application in that matter. And you mentioned before about having to kind of overcome perceptions and the continuous kind of having to prove that women and girls can play cricket and deserve to play cricket. So tell us a little bit about the barriers that you might have faced a bit earlier on and how you overcome them. Yeah, I mean, just the perceptions from general public, you know, about you play cricket, you know, that was the first one. It's almost like you had two heads whenever you walked into a room. And, 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 you know, I can remember it so clearly. And, you know, I'm so pleased that ECB have changed now. But I was, I never went anywhere uh, as captain without them putting England women's captain, you know, whereas the men, it was just England captain, you know, and so it was that perception it was almost those biasness without people actually recognising that it was a bias, that actually if you were England captain, you had to be a man unless it said women's captain. You know, so those things along the way were quite hard. And then when I was coaching, I had a male manager when I went over to Australia at one stage. And uh, whenever we walked into any um, practice scenario, people would go straight over to the to the man and say what do you want the wickets where do you what do you want for practice today you know and it was just like I'm the head coach you know and it was things like that you know where it was just a perception when I did my level four the number of times when I went to register at various hotels and they'd say oh are you the physio or are you the are you the administrator and I go no I'm I'm on the I'm a co- I'm a coach I'm on the course you know so it was there's always been those perceptions and and it, I think it's a little bit some of it was uh, because they weren't thinking and some of it was quite deliberate. And, you know, you can sort of accept the not thinking because once you pointed out to it, you knew whether it was a mistake because people would remedy it quite quickly. But it was the ones who didn't, who just kept saying, you know, women's cricket, women's cricket, you know, instead of cricket played by women or cricket played by men. You know, the sport itself doesn't have a gender. The, uh, the people that have a gender are the people playing it not the not the sport itself and uh, for me cricket is such a great game for women because it's it's it can have that power and dynamics but it can also have the subtleties and the skill and the 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 finesse if you like and I think that's where we need to get to is recognizing that the sport doesn't have that gender but yeah I mean it's been a not a struggle because I've, I've quite liked the challenge but it's certainly not been as easy as it would have been if I if I was a man, I mean, let's face it, if I was a man, I, I would be very recognisable uh, around the streets, um, whereas now I can live quite clear, cl- clearly without any bother whatsoever. And nobody even has a, a, any inkling, really, of what I've done unless I do something like this, where I was speaking to you or I, I did a talk for a school last week. And it was like, wow, you know, and they were all wow, you know, and you think, yeah, I guess it is quite good, you know. I, and I'm, you know, I used to think that losing the World Cup final in 1988 was a real failure. And now I look back and I think, 
you know what? Second in the world's not bad. You just mentioned that you played in the 1988 World Cup. What was it like to captain in that World Cup? Yeah, I mean, the 1988 World Cup uh, was an interesting one because we just lost a lot of experienced players. A lot of them had retired because in those days, you know, I was laughing to myself this week when I realised that the men's team are playing 17 tests this year. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure we, we had that many tests in my whole 12 years or whatever that I was involved, you know, and it's just like, so going to that World Cup final, uh, World Cup competition in 88 was an interesting one because the selectors decided to to blood a lot of youngsters. So your Joe Chamberlains of this world, your Karen Smithies, you know, we're all fresh, really. Um, they'd only just really come onto the scene. So we went to that World Cup not expecting or not being expected to reach the final. So, uh, you know, nothing gave me greater delight than uh, working with these young players and seeing them grow throughout the tournament and suddenly realising that we beat Australia in the uh, game at Richmond Cricket Club a week before the final. And because if we had not won that game, uh, New Zealand would have played Australia in the final, but we beat Australia. And I mean, beating Australia at any stage, but beating them in Melbourne, albeit on a slightly different ground to the MCG, but beating them was just a real shock around the world. You know, and uh, I can remember us playing that final. It was, uh, it's the first time I've regretted winning the toss because uh, we had overnight rain and we delayed and we batted first when we beat them. So we decided we'd bat first again, but <laughs> I think, there were times when you could have run five to the MCG boundary because the water on the ground just slowed the ball up. So anyway, won the toss, lost the game. But I said, as soon as we finished, I said to the group in a huddle, this team will win the 1993 World Cup. And, you know, uh, it did. And I think that that experience and those things that they went through in 88 really gave them that belief that they could beat Australia particularly in their own backyard because obviously the 1993 World Cup was back in England um, and you know they they performed brilliantly and went on to win so you know it, as a result I would say the 1988 World Cup was a great success because of that because it then meant that they could go on and win it again the following um, championships. And for you who were the standout players of that time of that generation because obviously we, we know quite a few of the names but from your perspective I get a bit blurred you once you start getting old you get a bit blurred about different people but you know Joe Chamberlain was a great player fantastic fantastic all-rounder you know Jeanette Britton was another class you know I mean there were certain players that you just think they were outstanding and I mean outstanding you know had they been around now then they would definitely be up there with your Meg Lannings of this world and your Heather Knights of this world. You know, these, these guys were outstanding. Joe was a brilliant left arm speed, a speedy bowler and could hit the ball. You know, she was a great all-rounder. And JB, you know, I mean, she was just class, you know, absolute class. The minute she went out to bat, didn't matter which team you were with, you wanted to watch her bat because she just had, she had every shot that you could think about. But, you know, I think about people like Lisa Nye, uh, you know, the wicketkeeper, who was just a great character, you know. And, you know, even in that World Cup final, she took a fantastic legside catch, which because uh, there were no, um, no video replay, wasn't given. Uh, and we all knew it was out, including, you know, the batter, you know, and it was just like, oh, so frustrating. But she was just 
a really good wicketkeeper. Uh, you know, and there were individuals like that that you just think Patsy Lovell was a great contributor, great team player, you know, one of the best team players that you could have. But, you know, I thought that they all gave, they gave me so much because they just did their, you know, gave their utmost for everything. But yeah, those players would stand out as being like they had something special. And growing up, was there anyone that you looked up to cricketing-wise that you thought you could emulate? Well, in those days, we didn't know that there was women's cricket, if that makes sense. So um, my dad was my hero and used to go to cricket every Saturday, Sunday and Wednesday night. So I wanted to be I want to be just like him. I want to be better than him. My brother played junior county stuff and my twin sister. But then, you know, obviously once I got to know, and I was lucky because um, as a junior growing up, we used to go to something called Coaching Week, which used to be held in Malvern. And the England players, coaches, so people like Chris Watmo, Sheila Plant, um, you know, they were the people who were coaching you, Margaret Taylor, you know, and really you learned so much from them because they were in the current side. So because you then were being coached by them, suddenly you wanted to emulate them, play with them, Rachel Hayho Flint, you know, uh, spent one summer uh, working, living in her flat in Wolverhampton, working in a sports shop, you know, I, I just loved everything all the interactions and people were very supportive then because uh, they saw you as an up-and-coming player and they wanted to support you in that as well so um yeah lots of those names and then you know you think back I think back to the 80 um 83 84 tour of Australia and there was a player there called Jill Kinnear and you know I can remember watching her but she only had two shots but she scored hundreds against us because she had the discipline to know that she only played those two shots so she had the patience so she defended everything that wasn't in the two slots where she knew she could hit the ball and when it came in those two slots she she hit it you know so there's lots of players along the way you know I've got a very very good friend in Shibangi Kulkarni the Indian leg spinner and what a classy player she was you know and uh, we're still in touch today you know and albeit from Covid you know I've been out to India 11 times and I would say five or six of those have been to to, to visit her sort of thing you know uh, and we were sort of the thing we had in those days where we were great competitors on the field of play but the minute we weren't on the field of play we were allowed to mix and we were allowed to get to know people so we had good fun Suda Shah you know the she's previously just coached um, India re- more recently and she's now a selector you know great fun but you know we just wanted to beat each other on the pitch but we got to know each other um, I guess now that we're starting to have WBBL and you know things like that the players all get to know each other better but I think that was something that was probably you lose it if, if not because you're very professional you're almost accused of being very professional these days which means you don't interact except on the field of play and I don't know if that helps because you know there was having a twin sister you know yes I'm a best supporter but if we ended up playing against each other I wanted to get her out and vice versa you know so I think it just makes you sharper almost because you know a lot of their weaknesses but you still want to get them out type thing so yeah some great players and along the way. So you just mentioned that sibling uh, rivalry there so thinking back about the county kind of system um, is it right Jill 
was at Kent whilst you were at Sussex? Correct, yeah. So we both went to PE college, the teacher training college, and she went to Dartford and I went to Chelsea. So because we were in those two respective counties, we were obviously down there in the summer. So she played for Kent and I played for Sussex. Uh, before I then, I had 12 years, I think, with Yorkshire, which was my home home county. So tell us a little bit more about what the county system was like back then as well, because obviously at the moment we're unsure if the county system is going to stay in place and then act as a pathway then to regional, whether it's just going to be junior pathways, then straight into regionals. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, I think it, a lot of it is dependent on the number of quality players you've got around. So in those days, you know, Kent, Sussex, Surrey, Yorkshire were and West Midlands. So we didn't have Warwickshire, Worcestershire, Leicestershire, etc. There was an area called West Midlands and then there was a, which were classed as a county. And then we had the West, which basically meant anywhere from Surrey, Sussex outwards, including the whole of Wales. So that was the West. So a massive area had one team. Uh, and we used to we used to play matches against each other. They were friendlies to start with. And then we had a county championship every year, which basically was a, uh, a week at uh, Cambridge. Um, Yorkshire, that's by the time I was playing for Yorkshire. And we used to stay in a caravan park. And, uh, you know, that was definitely a lift up from camping, which some some uh, teams camped because, you know, you had to pay it all yourself. So it was basically you did whatever was the, the feeling amongst everybody. But, um, yeah, I love my time at Sussex. You know, there was a great player there, Shirley Hodges. Jan Southgate was there. Um, Helen Stother was there. You know, there was a number, Elaine Woolco. There was quite a few England players there. And so, you know, and Shirley was a fantastic wicketkeeper. I'm sure she improved my throwing the most because if you didn't send it straight to a glove, she'd stand there with her hands on her hips, you know, teapot fashion. Like I had to bend there, but she was brilliant. Great wicketkeeper. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed my time playing for Sussex, uh, but I guess my first heart was always with Yorkshire if I'm honest. So uh, yeah, it was nice to go back home and play for Yorkshire. As far as the talent pathway is concerned, then basically that county championship would have been the equivalent of like a territorial tournament you know so because the areas were so broad and so vast uh, I mean at that stage Lancashire I think we had divisions and uh, I'm not sure that the other counties were up to that so East Anglia a bit like the west was everybody Norfolk Suffolk Hertfordshire Bedfordshire everything was just one so I guess it it wouldn't be dissimilar now to what the um the hundred teams are you know the centers the hubs where you've got eight regions it's probably boils down to roughly the same if I were to look at the numbers and with the 100 competition being introduced how do you think it's going to affect the women's game Personally, I think it'll be one of the biggest uh, next milestone for the women's game in this country because you've got eight areas that will be training at least 16 players. So, you know, all of a sudden you're going to have, you know, that number of players contending for international places and there'll be lots of young girls uh below that who are desperate to get into that hub center and I think you know you've got you've got to see it before you can achieve it almost you know and I just think wow if I was a young girl and I saw the 100 I'd be wanting to get picked for that 100 team because I think if it's more localized then you have more of allegiance with it you know you want to you want to go along to Nottingham you want to go along to Manchester you want to go you know because that's where I I live and and you'll get to know the players better 
I just think it's the next necessary step to get more quality. I think if we'd gone for more than the eight teams, we might have diluted the quality a bit too much. So whilst it might be harsh on those who have just not made the cut, well, come on, strive for it, get there. You know, nobody ever gets, anybody who's really successful in life doesn't always get it really easy. And I think, you know, if you make it too easy, then you dilute the desire, the passion, the commitment, you dilute dilute those things. So I think it's really good. I think it's just about pitch right. I think it's a lot easier and a lot better for the women than the men to have the 100 because I think the men have probably got a lot of people who are going to miss out. Whereas for the women, there's going to be a few who get a chance to play at that level that haven't probably challenged themselves at that level yet. So I think it'll be really good as long as they minimise the number of um, overseas players. Because I guess as well, um, talking about talent and everything, do you think because back in the day that you did have to pay your way, it perhaps was a barrier for some people getting involved or was there ways around that during that time? Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I'm not being rude, but I don't think it stopped anybody in those days. I think it's more likely to stop them in this day and age, because in those days, that's what you expected. So you went in, you know, I mean, my twin sister and I, we caught an overnight bus to London to play for Junior England, because that was the easiest and cheapest way of getting there. Literally, we traveled all night on a bus that called in at Chesterfield, Derby, uh, Leicester, you know, and, and we, we stopped. It took us, I don't know, 10, 11 hours. We got to London at five o'clock in the morning before the tubes were running because they didn't run all night in those days. We then got ourselves to Hammersmith. Somebody picked us up and we went to play again because that we couldn't afford overnight accommodation. You know, I mean, people would just look at it and be surprised in this day and age because how can you prepare properly if that's what you're having to do? Well, that's what we had to do, you know, and um, I found it awkward sometimes after matches when I became an adult because um, I, did, I didn't want to go to the pub not because I didn't want to drink but because I had no money and I couldn't buy anybody a drink you know and whether people but we were proud as well so you didn't tell anybody that you didn't have any money you know and I can imagine some people thinking I was a bit of a skin flint when actually I just didn't have any money you know simple as that and uh, you know mum and dad were brilliant but we basically had to earn money to be able to to go on these tours and things and the fortunate thing was that once you got to say Australia you were the responsibility of Australia so as long as you got your airfare paid then you were okay type thing you know so um, I don't think anybody was put off in those days I just didn't I think they didn't realize there was women's cricket a lot of them Um, I mean we got into it because dad played and he then saw an advert for Sheffield Women's Cricket Club so we went and played because he'd seen that and he thought it would be good to play in some women's cricket Um, but in this day and age it's more likely that people don't because expectations have changed so expectations are that um, I don't have the money and somebody else needs to help me out, you know, and that's not against anybody. It's just how society's changed, uh, that expectations have changed, whereas in those days, I didn't expect anything different and knew that we had to pay. I think I managed to get £100 out of um, Thornton's, uh, who were... I think my mum was working there at one stage and they said, oh, we'll give you some money to help you. And that was a lot of money in those days. That was like, oh, my goodness, that is brilliant. You know, so uh, you just found a way because you wanted to do it. You mentioned earlier that you represented England at badminton and hockey. What sort of drove you into playing badminton, hockey and cricket? 
very simply, uh, when I was at school, um, Jill and I, between us, played five sports for England. So Jill played netball, I played hockey. Um, Jill threw the javelin, I played badminton, and we both played cricket. But we quickly realised at school that if we were good at sport, we could get out of lessons. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, you know, I'm sure it's the same with Catherine Brunt. I'm sure it's the same with a lot of the people, Nazi, I'm sure they could turn their hand to any sport they liked, you know, and be reasonably successful. Well, that's what we were like as young youngsters and um, we had the badminton was because there was a member of staff at school who just loved his badminton and uh, you know in my class at school we had an international badminton somebody who went on to play international senior badminton Seb Coe was in my class at school you know I mean we were a sporty year group so whenever anything came along you just said yeah I'll play you know it was a school match so you played and suddenly your school team have, have reached the national finals and suddenly you picked up by Yorkshire suddenly you're playing for a junior England it was more by chance than planned I'd never planned any of it it was just and the reason I played hockey was because a teacher said we Jill and I couldn't both play netball so I said okay then I'll go and play hockey and then again you know the hockey teacher at school was England under 23 coach and she she encouraged me so I ended up playing there and the only reason I ended up being more of a cricketer than a hockey player I think quite simply was because of the tour to India in 81 because the hockey selectors then decided I'd chosen cricket so you know whereas I know that I played better hockey when I came back than what I did before I went but that's that's how it was in those days you know if a selector decided that you'd you'd done enough you'd done enough and you couldn't do anything about it because what you got to remember it was very much you selected 11 whether that was cricket or hockey you selected 11 oh and we'll have three reserves and you know there wasn't any of this multiple substitution so you didn't have a squad that you couldn't pick 18 you only picked 11 so was it harder I think it was slightly harder if I'm being honest to get picked up in those days but again you know it's just different environments different situations it's just the way things move on and progress you mentioned about young England so we don't really have the whole young England side anymore do we because what is the story about like how when did it kind of stop and how important was it for you to me, I think that was a mad, uh, absolutely incredible tour. You know, I guess it's like a development group or England A now is basically what it is. So it's trans- transformed into England A, mainly because they've probably got one or two later developers that they want to keep involved. But in those days, so in the first World Cup, they um, I'm sure that there was a in- young England in the first World Cup because they wanted the certain number of teams. They also had an international eleven, but there's that's another story where they just asked each country to provide three reserves or something that played in an international level but for us in those days I think it was just a transition from junior England which was under 19 through to senior England that they wanted this under 25 and India were quite new in 81 I think they started in 76 and um, they wanted an England team to go over and I think it was deemed that the full England side would be too strong and that the young England side not only would they be about the right level but also it'd be great um, grounding for people in future years I mean I've always said that you know if you can find somewhere to take a team that is slightly out of comfort zone then that's what you should do because one of the the main things that makes you successful at international level these days is your mental toughness and robust and when you go to a country as we did in 81 that was completely alien to us you know they didn't in those days they didn't have McDonald's and Coca-Cola whereas now they have both of them but in those days there was nothing that was recognizable uh, as being western 
nowadays it's a bit easier to go to uh, India because there are some recognizable Western brands out there. But uh, you soon found out who were the mentally tough people. And, uh, you know, I've just recently done it with our lacrosse teams and taken them to Japan. Not because Japan is difficult to go to, but not everybody speaks English. The food is not what you're used to. You know, you don't get the same things for breakfast. And that sounds like really twee and really silly, but actually it's seeing who can cope with those changes and still perform. So I think the idea of us going to uh, India in 81 was very much because they thought we were the right level to get out there. So that's why we went out there. Um, and, you know, for me, it was amazing. Uh, you know, we played test matches. We played one day internationals. We had a riot in Jammu where we didn't play. We got bundled into vans and put back on a train back to Delhi. I mean, you know, you can you could write a whole history book on it. It was just a, a, an amazing tour. You mentioned briefly that you're involved with the lacrosse setup. Could you tell us and our listeners about your role as being one of the four representatives on the New World Lacrosse Women in Sport Commission and what it entails? Yeah, I've been with lacrosse now since 2013. So I'm coming up to my eighth year. It'll be eight years in September. And um, one of the key things that World Lacrosse have just been looking at is, first of all, Olympic recognition. So that's been achieved. And they're now looking at the imbalance of males and females playing the sport. So um, if you go to a world championship, there'll be 50 to 60 men's teams playing. If you go to women's, there's only 25, 26. So there's a big imbalance in the number of countries playing so and a number of other factors that tie in with that olympic ideals and the uh, policies etc um and so they deemed that they wanted a women in sport commission. So um, I was fortunate to get elected onto that. And uh, our role is, is manifold. One is to look at policies and all that governance stuff. But one is to try and encourage more women to take up the sport and more countries to encourage women to play. And that's the part that really uh, excites me. I'm not a great policies person. I understand that you need them behind you. But, you know, I, I prefer the let's get these people enthused. Let's get them out there. Let's get them playing. Um, and the sport. So um, that's basically what we're doing. And we're also checking and challenging on all our press uh, releases and all the messaging that's going out, because I think sometimes without realising it, messaging can have a very genderized perception on behalf of lots of people. So we're just double checking everything that we do, you know, and, and you know, we've just had the circulation of the, uh, the Olympics uh, and the uh, Japanese president and his, what he said and what's happening I believe he's resigned now, you know, but quite rightly, you can't just say that you don't want women on committees because they talk too much and things like that. You know, I mean, it's just crazy that we're still we're in the 21st century and we've still got people believing that that's the truth when actually it's not the truth. It's that person's perception. And maybe it's time for that person to move on. So it's just a manifold. It is a brand new commission. So we're, we're actually formulating what we're going to do at this moment in time. So um, that's where we're at with that. Would you say that having a more equal and balanced lacrosse setup, is that one of the reasons why you wanted to get involved with lacrosse? For me, all sports should be equal and balanced. You know, I'm absolutely 
dismayed at the lack of women's sport that's gone on during COVID when you see how much men's sport's been played. You know, I'm sure if I was involved with the FA, I'd be like, oh, come on, guys, you know, you've had all this going on. You know, please, please look at what's happening in women's Super League and not just women's Super League, but the tier below. And I think often it's that tier below that are looked after in the men's section, but not in the women's section. You know, I mean, ECB have worked hard to get tours for the women, um, but, you know, it won't compare to what the men have got. You know, the men have had a staggering amount of cricket during these difficult times. So for me, it's about it's about tapping on the door lots and lots of times going, um, excuse me, what are you doing for us? Excuse me. You know, it's it's as it's being a blooming nuisance, if you like, that just keeps turning up and going, uh, don't forget that there's women playing this game. Don't forget that there's women playing cricket. Don't forget there's women playing hockey, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's I'm a great believer that because I wasn't necessarily supported so much doesn't mean to say, well, tough, eat it. I want to keep pushing forward for it to be a better environment for women to play in whatever sport that is. And you've already touched on it when you mentioned about the number of tests that you played throughout the whole of your career versus what England men are playing in this just one year. Even today, like the women get so few chances to play test fixtures. So what do you think needs to be done when it comes to the access and opportunity to play? Yeah, I think it's sad because I think you learn about the game of cricket if you play test cricket, because it really is a test, you know, to be able to, you know, be able to stay there for a day. You know, I mean, England men, I can't see them lasting two days, but, you know, that just the mental approach to that is a real challenge. I think um, ECB and Australia have done a good job as far as maintaining the test with the Ashes format. And I think if nothing else, then countries should try and apply that where they play at least one test alongside three one days and three three t20s because then we'll start to see the real great players the ones who can move between those between those sections and maybe we'll start to get the specialists like the men have got you know where some people just play t20 you know but i think um whatever we say they'll come out with a different there's either a cost or time or health they're the three things that people use as excuses for women's sport not taking place you know and i think it's time we stop those excuses and if it's cost well what are we going to you know you've afforded all this for the men then so we need to take something back from there and put it there then if, if you're saying it's only cost but then they'll come out with you know the time element well then you need to sort of use your time more wisely you know they're just excuses but they seem to hide behind those excuses and be allowed to hide behind them that's the sad thing so for me it's about education of the people in the power in the decision making positions to actually recognize that this would be an asset to the women's game not a hindrance echo everything you just said because that's one of my biggest frustrations as well it's always excuses and it's like well what about solutions but one of the themes of international women's day is this idea of choosing to challenge so what would be something you would want to challenge the ecb at the moment I challenge ECB on just the commitment to the women's game during COVID times. I think, you know, that it's it's a real hard one because you look at where we've come and you think, wow, we've come a long way. But then you look at how far we've got to go and it's just massive. You know, so um, Claire's, you know, Claire Connor, I I was a coach when she was captain. So I know Claire and I know that she's got a really good heart and she really does her best for the women's game. But she can't do it alone. And people have to support her and we have to support her and we have to support the hundred and we have to support all those things because we've come a long way, but 
we've still got a long way to go. So I would keep challenging and saying, okay, so what is the programme for the women coming out of COVID? What is the programme for the men? Okay, if it's if it's 70-30, um, well, can we make it 60-40? And then can we make it 50-50? You know, so that we start to move towards, we move in the right direction of promoting both genders playing cricket equally because you know these girls make a living out of playing cricket now it's not like they're you know they're like we were the professional amateur and I say that because we weren't blinking hard you know we trained just as hard I would argue it's just that we had to maintain a job at the same time as well you know but you know just let's keep moving forward let's not take a, a one step forward two steps back which is why it appears to have done in COVID. Where do you see the development of the women's game going over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see a lot more female coaches, particularly in the inner city areas and um, in the more remote areas. You know, the, the general um, county setup is quite good, I think. I think there's a lot of counties that have got a good women's setup. But let's look a little bit further afield so that we keep challenging more and more. You know, um, lots of good clubs, but let's encourage all clubs to have a women's section. Let's um, make sure that we've got female coaches working with those clubs so that they can you know they they meet the youngsters where they are and can develop them and hand them on to the next group and then they hand them on to the next group so I'd like to see a lot more qualified coaches uh, having the confidence to actually work with the youngsters I'd like to see um schools doing a bit more um it's difficult schools are under the cosh at the moment because they don't know what's happening but uh you know it's just a great game and i think we just have to keep being positive and promoting it in any aspect that we can because i think you know it's it's been around for a long long time and it's going to be around for a long time to come but let's make it the most positive environment for everybody to be involved in uh, whether that's in playing coaching scoring umpiring whatever it is let's make it the most positive environment and the most um, equitable as well where women can come into those areas without having to keep proving themselves you know if you're a cricket umpire why are you only putting women's games etc you know because surely you can work out if that's lbw or not you know um etc so um we need to be equitable in all areas of the game as we're kind of just drawing to a close now what's been your proudest achievement would you say so obviously you've been England coach you've been an England captain player you've scored lots you've got a fantastic career career post cricket as well so if you can nail that one thing what would it be yeah difficult to nail down one but you know one of the proudest moments was when I was coaching at Lords in 2000 and I brought my dad down onto the pitch with me at the end of the game and that sounds probably a bit twee but you know I'd give anything to have that moment again because he you know I mean he grew up in Yorkshire and he went cracky this outfield's better than a lot of the wickets I've played on you know that that would be one of his dreams if that and I knew on that moment that he was proud of me you know he never said much but I knew that he was proud of what he'd enabled me to achieve but yeah so many captain in a world cup final coach in England yeah uh, there's too many um I just loved every minute of it you know and I'm so grateful that I can still have a hand to play now as I start to mentor cricket coaches for ECB so I've still got a hand in there yeah love it and uh, just quickly I read somewhere that you coached at the 2012 London Olympics so I just wanted to know what was it like coaching at such a big event I, I was head of coaching at the 2012 
Olympics. So I worked with, I didn't coach the coaches coach, but I was watching the coaches and, and seeing how they were doing and throwing a few things in there. Uh, but the, the Olympics was something special. I think anybody who went to 2012 Olympics can't have been, have gone away without thinking, wow, that was something special because it was, you know, the whole atmosphere, uh, the, uh, the games, the village, everything was just phenomenal. And uh, yeah, it was a special time. And I've been very lucky to to have been involved in world championships in cricket, hockey, uh, and lacrosse, and also Olympics. You know, uh, there aren't many people who can have been involved in all those things. So I know how blessed I am and how how fortunate I am. You know, and uh, yeah, just thank God for everything that has happened. Really, as I say, it's such an honestly outstanding career, both in sport and then impact in sport post playing and stuff so thank you so much for sparing some time Alex have you got any more questions or shall we wrap up I haven't got any more so <laughs> yeah no, that's perfect then but thank you so so much Jane and honestly well and well done to you too you know you're you're playing a massive part in getting things out there as well so brilliant it's great to see thank you honestly I'll, I'll start crying in a minute <laughs> um well we will let you escape and get back to the world of lacrosse um, but thank you honestly can't say thank you enough and I will probably badger you again for something in the future I'm sure yeah. of it <laughs> any time at all and thanks Alex thanks a lot and uh, all the best with everything that you're doing as well and um, all the best for everything you've got coming up as well thank you thanks guys thank you so much have a lovely rest of the day will do and you thank you so much to Jane for being our fourth guest on our International Women's Week podcast and coming up tomorrow, we've got some exciting characters for you in Shruti and Shilly. Now, Shruti and Shilly are a part of the Dream Big campaign in partnership with the ECB to promote cricket in South Asian communities. They'll be talking all about that and more on tomorrow's podcast. And to all our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with everything we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at WCricketChat and on Instagram at Women's Cricket Chat. And if you want to give us a like on Facebook, we are Women's Cricket Chat. And if you wanted to give our personal Twitters a follow, Hannah is at Hannity1194 and I'm at Alex Jane Pereira. This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time. Thank you.